context is king. That's what, I don't know, Edward maybe has even said that before. I'm sure he, I'm sure he has if he's, um, uh, just knowing the, the, some of the background that he came from. Context is king, they say. And uh, the reason that we say that kind of thing in our little uh, Bible study circles is because it's so easy to go to a passage of Scripture and start reading it and think that you know what it means, but you haven't taken into account the context in which it takes place. And more often than not, if you go to a passage of Scripture and start to interpret without taking into consideration the context of what you're looking at, you're not hearing what's there, you're interpreting it in light of your own context, and you're importing information into the text rather than pulling information out of the text. So one of the great attempts that we're making in interpretation is to somehow blend those horizons. The text is taking place over here, and here's my world, and I want to do whatever I can to get into this world so that I understand what's being said in this text. Author's intended meaning, that's what we're after. And so it's really important. Anytime you're interpreting the Bible, it's really important in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, you sent me a letter, and there are some things that I'm concerned about in this letter, some beliefs that you have. And one of the beliefs that the Corinthians have, as we've talked about, is the belief that It is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. Now that breeds all kinds of trouble in a marriage. So for example, Paul has to start unraveling the mess of some couples who are not having sex in their marriage because of this belief that it's not good. The Corinthians have an ascetic mentality. It's more spiritual to not have sex than to have sex, because sex has to do with the body, and there's a separation between the body and the spirit to the point they, they believe that, that the spiritual things have nothing to do with the physical things, and so um, sex is bad. It's not good for you to be having sex in a marriage. So Paul deals with that in the first few verses, verses of chapter 7. It's not good for you, perhaps even to be married. So some of them are talking divorce, well, that brings us to an interesting issue. What if, what if you are scheduled to be married? What if, you're, what if you've entered into a, uh, an engagement or a betrothal is the word that uh, we'll be talking about this morning? What do you do? Well, the Corinthian mentality, apparently from what Paul says here, it seems that the, the Corinthians are endorsing a view that believes that it's bad, perhaps even sinful if you go ahead and marry the person you're betrothed to. Well, how's he going to respond to this? It's a really difficult situation for Paul because he actually endorses singleness. And in fact, it could be that that year and a half that Paul was in Corinth, that he, he was there pastoring them, teaching them, and, and perhaps even endorsing his, his uh, perspective that it's good to be single, and in fact even prefers to be single. It could be that they're thinking back on that teaching and have somehow taken that, misapplied it, misunderstood it, and are now thinking that 
It's Paul's teaching on singleness that we're endorsing when in reality Paul says, hey, I do endorse singleness, but I have way different reasons for endorsing it than the reasons that are happening in the church body. So he's in a tough position. He has to endorse it here, which is what he's going to do. But he has to do it in a way so that he avoids laying a restraint around people who wish to marry, as though marriage were a sin. So that's where we... that's. That's what's going on in this passage. I got to I got to share my preference for singleness without laying a restraint on those who wish to marry. So, verse 25, we are introduced to this and this is really interesting. Paul gives his apostolic opinion. You don't really see anything like this anywhere else in the New Testament where you have Paul giving just an opinion on something that is not necessarily what you ought to do. So let's read this, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment, or my opinion, my guidance, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I'm giving you my opinion here. Here's here's what I think on this issue of the betrothed. And it's trustworthy advice. I'm giving it to you one, but as one who is trustworthy. This is coming to us from a person that Jesus would want you to trust when he gives his advice. But it is just advice, nonetheless. Which becomes very clear through the passage. So, this is not an issue of making a right or a wrong decision. We're going to unpack that. And notice that his opinion is regarding the betrothed. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. Now the word here in most, in most translations is translated virgin. Um, if you have an NIV, I believe that's the, that's the word that the NIV uses. And there's, really, there's nothing wrong with that translation. In fact, that's, that's normally how this word ought to be translated. If you were to go through and think of it that way in this whole passage, you would be just fine. As long as you realize that there's something, there's a little more texture to it than that. When you take this word and look at how it's used throughout the, word, throughout the rest of chapter 7. In the rest of chapter 7, this word virgin actually has some, some probably additional meaning to it beyond just a, a person or a woman, in this case, a woman who has not had sexual relations. You can see it in verse 36 and in verse 38. Verse 36, listen to this. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, or if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his virgin, it goes on. If his passions are strong, then it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. There's no sin. Or verse 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. He who marries his virgin does well. Okay, so what is, what is, this, what is this little possessive, uh, pers- uh, his, his third person pronoun doing here? His Virgin. Some people say, well, this is talking about a father who is giving his virgin daughter in marriage. 
So some, some people will take it. I just don't think that makes sense at all. I mean, listen to verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his virgin, okay, this is a father and his daughter. This is just not, I mean, it just even, doesn't even make sense. If his passions are strong. This is talking about a man with strong passion for a virgin that might be said is his. And probably the best understanding is they're betrothed. This is, this is similar to um, the way that Mary was betrothed to Joseph and yet a virgin. This before they had consummated the marriage. It's more than an engagement. It's more, than, it's more official than an engagement. You remember when, Mary, when, when Joseph found out that Mary was with child, he had it in his mind to divorce her. Because they were betrothed. And a betrothal was more official than an engagement, less official than a fully consummated marriage, but still required divorce to separate. So that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, a betrothed woman. That seems to be what's, what Paul's talking about. How, how, do you go, how do you handle a situation in which you are betrothed if... It's more spiritual to be single. That's the Corinthian mentality. Paul's going to respond to it. And he says, I think it's best to go ahead and remain as you are. Now, what does that mean? Verses 26 and verses 27. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? The same word could be just translated to a woman. Are you bound to a woman? Um, Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Or are you free from a woman? Do not seek a wife. Are you bound? The NIV, I like the NIV's translation better here. Are you pledged to a woman? Are you betrothed? Then remain. Go ahead and marry her. Are you free from such a commitment, the NIV says? Are you free from a betrothal commitment? If free, then do not seek a wife. And that statement launches him into the heart of the issue that he's really going to have to deal with here. Do not seek... That's, that's my opinion. If you're in a situation where you're not in that betrothal commitment, then... Remain. Do not seek a wife. Paul is suggesting that if you're single, remain single. And what he has to do here is explain why he thinks it's good to remain single without turning his advice into a law that creates anxiety and places a noose around the singles, which is exactly what the ascetic mentality is doing. If it's more spiritual to be single, then that's gonna, that pretty much binds you. Because your only option then is either remain single and be spiritual or settle for less and get married. Well, Paul does prefer singleness, but not for those kinds of reasons. And so he gives us some reasons. He gives us two reasons 
um, that differ from the ascetic mentality. And we'll look at one of those reasons today. We'll look at one of them next week. And reason number one is in verse 26, and this is how he says it. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In light of the present distress, if you're single, it's good to remain as you are. Now, whatever the distress refers to, which we'll look at a little more in a moment, whatever the distress refers to, what I really want us to see very clearly is that Paul's reason for suggesting singleness is a practical reason, not a moral reason. It's because of the present distress that I suggest this. The Corinthians want to say, to marry is wrong. It's a moral issue. Paul says, no, no, marriage brings difficulty. It's very different reasoning. Now, having made his opinion known, he immediately makes a crucial clarification. Verse 28, and you can almost imagine him right now just going, okay, let me share with you the reason that I think it's good and, and then I, I, I'm going to just, after I share that, I'm going to clarify something really important. Okay, so here's what he says. I, verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do you not seek to be free? Are you free from a wife? Do you not seek a wife? Verse 28, let me clarify. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. You have not sinned. Um, I lost my place. And if a betrothed woman marries... She has not sinned. Neither partner has sinned if you decide to go ahead and do that. Okay, so so Paul wants to make sure that you understand when he suggests this, I'm not binding you into anything here. And then he reasserts his preference again at the end of verse 28. Um, Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. I I want to spare you that. So three things to note here in Paul's reaffirmation at the end of verse 28. Three things to note. Once again, Paul promotes singleness, and the reason is because marriage will bring certain types of trouble, worldly troubles. Therefore, it's also a reaffirmation that Paul's reason is not moral, In nature, it's not because singleness is morally or spiritually superior. And that's, by the way, that's exactly why it's just an opinion. That's that's exactly why he's presenting it as an opinion and not as a law. Because it's not a moral issue. I just have some practical, pragmatic, you might even say, reasons for why I think this is a good idea. So those, those are the first two things to know. The third thing is, is that it helps us understand that he really does intend to share this for our benefit, not to put a burden on us. Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And we can know that we are not tracking with Paul's teaching on singleness if when we hear it, We begin to feel anxious because we feel like it traps us as singles or condemns us as married folk. You you know for sure you're not tracking with Paul's teaching on singleness if you hear it and go, God, dang it. I I, I, I guess I'm trapped if I really want to follow the Lord. 
Okay, then you're not, you're not, this is not his, his reason. Paul is saying, I have an opinion for you, but it's not intended to make your life anxious. It's to spare you trouble. That's all I'm intending to do. The ascetic singleness mentality in Corinth is causing terrible anxiety because you Corinthians are fearing that if you marry, you're disobeying God and choosing a morally inferior option by getting married and my preference for singleness and recommend recommendation for it it's not a law it's just a suggestion and if you were to marry somebody it's certainly not a sin so don't be anxious about that don't be anxious that is not what paul is trying to create and traditionally i think there's been a lot of anxiety over the teaching on singleness And the reason is because in the next passage, traditionally, verses 20, I'm sorry, verses 32 to 35 have been interpreted to say that only the single can have undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, I think that is a bad interpretation of that passage. I don't think that's what that passage is saying. Now, I'll I'll defend that next week and... If it is what the passage is saying, then there are some serious exegetical and practical ministry questions that have to be answered. I don't think that's how that next passage should be taken. But for now, let's just say this. Paul's preference for singleness is not a law, and it's not intended to put you in a moral dilemma, and it's not intended to do anything other than spare you some trouble in light of the present distress. And that's what I want to talk about now and give the rest of our time to, is what is this present distress? What, what's, what, what is it that lends itself to troubles, worldly troubles, for those who would marry? Well, Perhaps some people think it's something specific happening in Corinth. Like chapter 11, verse 30, we read that there are many. Now, the church in Corinth is, what did we say at the beginning of this series? 80, 100 people? There are many of them who are either sick or dead because they've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Okay, that's a big hit for a little church, that many of them are in that situation. It could be that they are in the midst of a famine, some scholars suggest. We just really don't know. Um, So maybe, maybe part of the argument goes something like, hey, it's just a really crazy time right now to be making big life changes. Um, So in light of the present distress, my encouragement is just chill where you are. That could be part of it. Um, but in light of verse 29, there's something bigger, I think. Verses 29 to 30, what is it, 31? There's some sort of large-scale, general difficulty that's common to all believers, the challenges that are, that are normative for Christians while the church remains in this present overlap of the ages. Now, we've talked about this several times. You have, right now... An age that is coming to an end and we have a coming age that has already begun and we live right in between the two of them. 
It's the already not yet reality. This is a strange time that we live in. And we live in a world that is going to pass away and in fact is already in the process of passing away. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. Okay. I want you to remain because of the present distress. If you're single, remain single because of the present distress. This is what I mean. Verse 29. The appointed time has grown very short. And then the very end of verse 31. The present form of this world is passing away. We live in a strange time with regards to our relationships to the things of this present world because they're all passing away. And yet, this is where we live. It's just, it's, it's strange. And it's a time that Paul seems to regard as a time of distress. We're here and nothing's going to last. But we got to live here in this place where everything is going to pass away. It's sort of like, Gordon Fee says, it's, it's sort of like living with a terminal illness. Well, you're still alive. You're still going to brush your teeth. You're still going to buy groceries. You got to cash the check. You got to, uh, you know, you still got to drive to your doctor's appointments. You, you, you got to buy Maybe, maybe you need to buy some clothes. You've you got you to keep on living. In fact, you, you might really make it count at this point. Because you know it's going away. But whatever it is that you're doing in this last brief breath of life, you're doing it as a person whose entire frame of reference is determined by the fact that what's present is in the process of passing away, and it's going to be over very soon. If you've got three weeks to live, this is not the time to start a law degree. So you're not going to go buy yourself a nice big house. You're not going to buy tickets to next year's Super Bowl. That's not how you live. When you know it's going to be gone. And similarly, Paul says that we are living in a world that is going to be gone because it's passing away. It's a very strange time. And it's a very distressing time. Because you can't get too attached to anything. And yet, you must live in it. And live responsibly in it. It's just, it's just hard. That's a, that's a pilgrim mentality. So, Paul gives five quick examples of how to live in this present time of distress. And he starts with, verse 20, 29, those who have wives. So, verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Okay? How literal do we take this? Uh, Well, the point is not that Paul's making a literal statement. Paul is rhetorically stating, trying to tell us to live in a way so as to recognize that your marriage is not the ultimate reality in your life. Your marriage does not last beyond your death. You won't, you know, gentlemen, you will not have a wife someday. Ladies, you will not have a husband someday. Live in light of that fact. The end is coming. 
We talk in the marriage study of all your horizontal relationships for you who are married. Of all of those relationships, the most important relationship is the relationship with your spouse. It's more important than your relationship with your kids. You've all heard me say this so many times now. It's more important than your relationship with your parents. It's more important than your relationship with your best friend, your, your, your college roommate, your sister, whatever. If that horizontal relationship with your spouse is number one. But if you make it number one in the ultimate sense, you're going to be in trouble. You can't make it the ultimate foundation of your life. You can't live for your marriage. So, live like someday it's not going to be here. Because that's what's real. Now, of course, that doesn't mean just ignore your wife or something weird like that. You know, it, the, the, the point... You got to, and that's why it's so distressing. You got to pour into this thing all kinds of energy. But watch out that you don't make it an idol. That's tough. Those who rejoice. Verse 30, you've got those who have a wife. They're supposed to live in a certain type of way. Verse 30, and those who, oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped mourning. Verse 30, those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Okay, so the sorrows that you experience in this world are not the final chapter of your story. None of us, single, married, doesn't matter. Your sorrows here on earth are are not the, uh, they don't have the last word. They don't win the day. Your grief here is a grief that is limited to a world that's passing away. And likewise with your joys. Verse 30, those who rejoice as though... Let's see, where am I? Verse 30, um, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. The joys of this world are fleeting joys. The brief pleasures of worldly happiness, they're, they're really sweet. Some of them are fantastic joys. Right? Who went to a great picnic yesterday? Or who's going to one tomorrow? Family picnics, Memorial Day picnics, family outings, vacations, a good, bo- a good book, good food. Just, hey, sometimes the joys of this life are just sweet. And they're here today and gone tomorrow. They're gone tomorrow. Do you live for the joys of this world. A lot of us do, myself included. I'm sure, New Hope Fellowship, most of you have to fight to not live for the fleeting joys of this world. It's what we give our money to. It's what we give our time to. It's what we give our education to. It's what we give our mental energy to. Last night, 2.30 in the morning, I wake up. And you could, actually, parenthesis, you could pray for... Us, I, we do not sleep well on Saturday nights, pretty regularly. Um, and there's probably something to that, so please pray for us. Um, close parentheses. We are getting ready to move into a new home, a rental, in Pleasantville. And I am so excited. We went over there yesterday, and like the neighbors, they just like, they all came over, they were like, they were ta- we talked to the neighbors for like 20 minutes. It was just awesome. Really excited about this neighborhood. 
one of the challenges of this home is that the master bedroom, the biggest bedroom in the house, is nine feet by 11 feet. We have a king-size bed right now. I like it. I want to keep it. Um, I don't want a queen-size bed. And so, from 2.30 until the dawn, I mold over in my mind, how could we make this work? And it was just, I was so anxious and frustrated and worried. Now, don't miss the point. The point of the story is not, why did you decide to move to that house? The point is not, is it, you know, is it okay to um, think about king-size, queen-size bed? No, you have to think about that kind of stuff. We've got to think about it. We've got to make a decision here. You have to think about the things of this world. It's the world that we live in. The problem in that situation is that my whole reality is being shaped and ruled by anxieties that come from living as though the pleasures of this world are ultimate. And all night long, I'm wrestling with the idolatry of putting all my hope into things that, in seriously, in a week or a month, or a year, or in a hundred years, I will not give a rip about. But I love my stuff. And you do too. Rejoice as one who's not rejoicing. That is, as though the things of this world are what you're putting all your hope into. Those who buy, verse 30, once again, those who buy as though they had no goods. Those, verse 31, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. it it's just so easy to give our whole life to acquiring things, to the, to the, the, temp, the temporal relationships, and you've got to do it. But it just rules us, and we lose crazy sleep over it. And we put money where we shouldn't put it. And we put time where we shouldn't put it. We do all kinds of things because we're ruled by the misimpression, I don't even know if that's a word, that this is ultimate reality. It just feels so real. And it is just going to blow away. And it won't be long. Paul says it's all passing away. Marriage, worldly sorrow, worldly joy, Worldly possessions, dealing with this world. It's hard to live like a pilgrim. It's just hard to not live in light of all these things as though they are ultimate. And it's honestly just a distressing experience. Catch that? It's just distress. Is anybody, you guys with me on this? Is this hard for anybody else? It's just hard. You can never really settle in. You can never get too comfortable. You're always on the move. It's kind of like renting. It's kind of like renting a home. Yeah, you put your heart... Yeah, you make it a home. Yeah, you paint again and again and again. You paint. 
But, you know, I had a roommate one time. I think I was sharing this with somebody the other day. I can't remember who it was. I had a roommate one time, and we moved into this new rental. And first thing he did was have the, the floor replaced. I said, I'm not paying for that. I'll paint it, but I'm not replacing, I'm not doing remodeling here. Okay. Now, sorry, if some of you remodeled a rental, I'm sorry. It's, it's just an illustration. <laughs> um, the point here is that Paul is trying to help us understand why he thinks that in light of this distressing, passing world, it's good to stay single. It's really interesting that in none of these examples, he even mentions singleness. The point is, this is a distressing world, and it's a general call for everyone, married or single, to live a life that's free from captivation with the present age. And the point of Paul's preference for singleness is not ultimately about your marital status. It's ultimately about whether you're married or single, are you living for this world or for the next world? That's the ultimate point. So practically speaking, singleness might facilitate your ability to do this more effectively. And that's why he suggests it. Just practically speaking, if you're single, it might be easier to not live for this world. But the married can live in light of this age to come. I'm sorry, the age to come. The married can live in light of the age to come. Also, as someone who is fully sold out to Jesus, he's just going to have some troubles doing it. And Paul wants to spare you that. So it's tough not to settle in, whether you're married, whether you're single, because it feels so real. And when you get married, you have some additional attention that you must give to the things of the world. You just have to. And that might be a snare to your single-minded devotion to God. doesn't have to be, but it might be. In marriage, you're going to have some interpersonal conflict that will bring certain types of grieving that you may have never tasted before. Grieving in this world. You'll be tempted to despair and worry and grieve and, and like thinking that the world is going to fly out of orbit over, seriously, sometimes the dumbest stuff. You'll be tempted to lose all hope if you lose your spouse. You'll have some relational joys that you'll be tempted to idolize. The, the joy of companionship, sex, a family that you'll be tempted to idolize. You'll be temp- that, that will be a snare to you. And because of some of those things, you're going to have to probably make some more money. You have more mouths to feed. You're going to have to find a place where you can have two people live there, not just one, or maybe three people, or maybe five people, or more. You might have to get a new job. You might have to get a new career. You might have to go get a new degree. 
There's just a lot more time needed dealing with the things of this world. And you have to. That's not wrong. That's not sinful. And it's not unpleasing to the Lord. It doesn't have to water down your devotion to the Lord. It's just hard to not get snared. So married or single, it's not easy to resist settling in. And if you're married, it's even easier to start thinking these things are ultimate. And you get caught in a here and now mentality. And I know that it, I know that the singles, you guys deal with the same things. You're dealing with, how are you doing at this, actually, singles? How are you doing in not getting sucked in to a here and now mentality as a single? It's a good question. You've got to ask that. Are you, are you slipping into the single American dream? And how are you married folks doing at this? I was trying to think of just a good example of before you were married it was like this and now you're married and it's like this. And, and the, the best one that I could think of was just from my own experience with college ministry. I mean, when I was single and in college and doing college ministry, all I cared about was the kingdom of God. You know, it was like up till six in the morning, all night long, drinking coffee, playing cards, talking about Jesus, sharing my faith, baptizing people. And there was just a group of us. We're just this group of like Jesus freaks on this campus. It was a sweet time of ministry. And it just has to look different when you're married. And when you got kids. And a lot of that ministry that you had, maybe if this was you when you were single, it has to be transferred now to a new context. It's not, it's not happening in the dorms anymore. It happens now in the home and in the neighborhood. And the disciples aren't the 19-year-old philosophy sophomores philosophy majors who are willing to stay up all night and talk about religion. You know, it's just a cool, it was such a cool time. So many people eager to think about what they're going to be doing the rest of their life. Ideas just coming from everywhere at a college campus. The, the, the discipleship was just awesome. But, but now, what does discipleship look like? Well, it looks like discipling not the 19-year-old, discipling the 4-year-old. In your home, for you guys, discipling your wives, your families, discipling the a, a single here at the, in the church body, or 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 a widow next door, or a cup that new couple at church, or the couple that you met at the soccer field on Saturday because your kids play soccer together. There's a new context. But all too often, rather than transferring that passion that you once had 
into a new context, what happens for married folks is they just get isolated. And instead of their home being this like fortress of just explosive kingdom-minded family living like a squad. Remember Tom Harkis talking to us about your family being a squad? Instead of the family being a squad that's on mission, instead of the home being a place of ministry, it becomes a castle of consumerism and isolation. And that, and that passion was never transferred. And, and, and you used to be all about the kingdom of God, and now you're just kind of not doing anything except living the American dream. And you're not a squad on mission, you're just a jellyfish floating with the tide. An evangelifish. This is a dumb joke. But it's true. I mean, can anybody relate to this? This is like, it's easy to get snared when you're married. You just get, you just grow dull. Your heart just grows dull. And Paul would spare you singles of that trouble, that temptation. Not because singleness is more spiritual. It's just easier to live free from the snares of the world. And because of that, he says, in light of the distress, I suggest remain. And that's the first reason why he recommends singleness. We'll get to the second reason next week. But hear this, it is no sin to marry. These are just pragmatic, practical reasons why singleness is a good idea. Next week we're going to do three things. One, we'll finish talking about the advantages of singleness. Two, we'll talk about how both the married and the single can live their lives in undivided devotion to the Lord. And three, we'll talk about whether or not you can still want to get married after hearing this. And the answer is you can. You can, and it's good. You will do well, Paul says. And how you should live in light of that, if that's what you want to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It's extremely practical. These are not just ethereal, religious ideas that we're trying to just philosophize about and ponder in some abstract sense. These are this is this is life and how we should live here. The old saying, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good is totally unbiblical. Help us to be more heavenly minded so that we might live our lives here more purposefully and more devoted to the single cause of Christ and His kingdom, whether we are married or betrothed or not married, single, widowed, divorced, on mission for the kingdom. God, would You move in our midst, in this church body, give us a passion to see Christ exalted and help us to live well in a time of distress as though marriage is not ultimate, as though worldly sorrows are not ultimate, as though riches, rejoicing is not ultimate, as though possessions are not ultimate, as though our dealings with the world here are not ultimate, as though Christ and His coming kingdom is ultimate. Do it for us, Lord, and do it for your 
glorious namesake. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.